Hello listeners and welcome to episode number 16. Thank you for tuning in to Soundvibe. I'm Jane Nicola, your host, speaking to you from the sweet city of Shanghai. Thanks to those who've written in and you might also like to sign up to my very new podcast page on Facebook where I share more inside news and banter. You can find my page listed as J. Nicola Soundvibe Podcast. podcast I speak with Morena, the lead singer from Salad. We delve into a tussle of lyrical interplay and revel in the brisky force of the current Brighton days, as well as taking a kaleidoscopic view to the earlier band days that took place at the Beat Factory studio with Graham Holdaway. Hello, Morena. It's really great to see you. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure. And where are you ringing in from right now? I'm ringing in from the UK and a lovely seaside town called Brighton. How long have you been in Brighton? Two and a half years. Uh, mid-pandemic, I moved to, to Brighton um, just for the simple reason that my son was not getting the need, not getting the attention and support that he needed he's autistic um in in london so i came to brighton to find all the right support and finally now after two and a half years everything's in place that's how long these things take that's amazing to hear and uh i'd like to really pay my respect to you for going through that process yeah today we're going to talk a little bit about salad and i'm so excited about this and listening into your music where did the name Salad come from for your, your band? And I understand it's now Salad Undressed. Well, no, well, okay, first of all, it, it is Salad. Um, it was Salad Undressed for a pared down version that started in 2017. That was just Paul and I, and then Donald, our drummer, joined. Um, he was our producer and then became our drummer. But Salad Undressed is, is just a slightly different version of Salad, more uh-huh. esoteric, more melodic not so poundingly hard all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. So we are salad as a, as a four piece. Um, but the salad undressed record, Good Love, Bad Love, is actually our favorite work. Wow. Um, and my dream, my dream, is we all have to have dreams and hopes where we can't get out of bed without them. My dream is to write a little theater production around the album, the salad undressed album, Good Love, Bad Love and um, get yes. that set up in a theatre, you know, with strings and yes. choirs. and <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. what my hope is. So in 1991 or 92, um, Paul and I were the Merry Babes, and um, we were just the two of us, and then it grew, and suddenly we found ourselves to be, you know, an indie rock outfit. And the Merry Babes just didn't suit the music anymore. So we all sat in our kitchen... Um, two of us lived in the same house and we all wrote a long list of possible new names and 
there must have been some really good names on that. But for some reason, being a democracy, we went with all our, we, we all had a favorite list. And the only common name on the favorite list was Salad. And uh, which is just not how you should choose a band name. You know, it needs to, it needs to be, pizz wow, pizzazz. Yeah, this will get people talking. And of course it did get people talking, but for the wrong reason. And we had no idea how press worked. And so one of our, and, and, and copywriting and headlines. So one of our first reviews was, you know, Let Us Rock. Uh, the headline, Let Us Rock. And we were like, oh dear, what have we done? Uh, the reason we chose it is because it was quite banal. Didn't, you know, it was really quite the opposite of the music we were making, which was hard and angular and weird and um, um, surreal lyrics. But also because it was short and it, mm. and you could, it looked good. It was nice and symmetrical. And what we always said, band names are generally really rotten and bad. But you then stop seeing the word when you become, when you grow to love a band, that particular word just is associated with your love for that act. And till this day, when I order salad in a restaurant, I never think of my band, ever. Other people remark on it. I go, oh yeah, <laughs> because they're not the same words for me. So that's, that's why. I have been embarrassed about the name for many years, but I, I refuse to now be embarrassed about it because we will pun as much as possible with it now. I have a t-shirt that says, you know, Mr. Nibble says he's my rabbit, eat your greens. That's, that's a salad t-shirt because it's all about eating your greens. Although don't give salad to rabbits because it'll make them poo. With the songs, have your songwriting processes changed over the years with Paul Kennedy? They have. Um, so initially, Paul was the main songwriter. And in 90, you know, we were an item from 86 to 88 or something. And he, he, I just sung his lyrics. What I did is I brought his lyrics to life, however surreal and weird they were. I never suggested rewriting them. And in the 90s, there are some lyrics on our albums where I go, Ooh, why why did I not ask Paul to rewrite those? Because they make no sense, although I, I make them make sense. You know, that's kind of my trick with his words. But now, since we started writing again in 2016, it's very much a, a co-writing um, process. He'll give me lyrics. I'll rewrite them. I'll say, I won't sing that. That makes no sense. Now, what are you trying to say here? It's very much uh, teamwork. Through that process our songs have started to make a bit more sense and connect with people and are relevant, more relevant. And, and it started really with Good Love, Bad Love because we realised that the songs on that were love songs and Salad never wrote love songs. God forbid we do not write love songs. Who wants to write about love, we thought. But now, really, we write about life experiences of which love, of mm. course, is one and comes in many shapes and sizes. We've we've grown old and wise, Jane.
And what gigs have you enjoyed this year? We just did a gig in Brighton, which was so joyful. And I'm just currently editing the best bits of that because I work at the Screen and Film School here and, and my students, some of my students came to film the gig and because uh, I'm an editor as well, I, I teach editing. What's so great about editing your own short live gig film is that you edit out all the bits where, you know, my double chin is a little bit too big and things like that. And I'm not quite hitting the notes it's a it's a real luxury but it was really joyful because we don't do that many gigs so when we do people really do join us in 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 their droves and we engage a lot with our audience you know we it is a two-way thing and we talk to them and we have a laugh it's never scripted you have bullet points you know between songs I write bullet points of what I might like to talk about and and invariably like I am today I go off on tangents and I have a giggle to myself and then everybody else giggles with me and Paul I get Paul to talk he wasn't in the best moods in Brighton I have to say but I got him to talk and of course he always then goes off on one and ends up singing an Andrew Lloyd Webber song stuff like that it's not just about the music when you come to our shows it's about personalities. Yeah. I can see that from some of the clips. What inspires these songs? Where where do they come from? Is it like you're out in the garden and then suddenly the song comes? Is it through conflict? You said life experiences. So yeah. with Paul, it's very much, it's so we've got two different types of songwriting going on here. With Paul, he basically can't help himself. He will be cycling. He'll have to stop. A song is in his head, ready formed, fully formed. He has to write down the words and then try and remember the melody before he gets home in order to record it. And they usually are, they are life related, but they are properly bandaged up in a, a color that you wouldn't recognize. Mm -hmm. So it's only after I've sung a song a couple of times, I go, oh. This is what this song is about, Paul. It's about that time that you did this and this. And he went, well, I suppose so. I'm like, it he doesn't even know what his songs are about. And sometimes that annoys me because, come on, you know, you need to connect with your audience. And you're not going to connect with the audience singing about Spanish trousers. And I said, Paul, I am not going to sing a song about Spanish trousers. And he says, well, what would you like to call it? I said... Uh, wayward thinking. How about wayward thinking? The same Spanish trousers. Wayward thinking. And then he only um, substituted the word, the, the phrase Spanish trousers with wayward thinking. And suddenly it became a beautiful song. You look so good with your wayward thinking instead of you look so good in your Spanish trousers. And see how that changes the song. So, but when it comes to me, I, I very much write about how I'm feeling, which is, you know, how most songwriters do it. But then I still subvert it a little bit. One song that's doing really well on the internet is a solo song that I wrote for our fans between Christmas and New Year back in 2018. All about the different Christmas um, Christmas traditions around the world, because, I mean, I hate Christmas. So I needed to just let everybody know it's okay to hate Christmas. It's a really difficult time. You're not alone and you are loved. You know, that's doing quite well. <laughs> What's the song called? Uh, Christmas is a hard nut to crack. Mm, I completely connect to that. I've always found Christmas very strange. So there you go, listeners. 
Let's listen into that one before Christmas comes. Can we delve back a bit now? Now, I heard about your band quite a bit just by speaking to um, Alex Holdaway and Marika Bergkamp, who's co-owner of the Beat Factory with Graham Hold- Holdaway, who sadly uh, we lost in 2020. And I understand um, from those two ladies that you worked with him quite a bit. Um, so Graham was our hero in the early 90s. Um, I've always been a very can-do person, whereas Paul is very much quite a a subdued, sort of safe playing person. So at one point in the 90s, I said, look, we've got songs. We're a band now. We're called Salad. We need to record them. Let's get the book out and call all the studios and say, would you like, have you got any downtime? So we... Paul went, all right, if you make the phone call. So I did. And the one person that said, sure, come visit us at the Beat Factory, bring your demos, and we'll see if we like like it. And that was Graham. And so we went to visit. And, of course, there was a connection there, me being Dutch, Marijke being Dutch. Um, Graham had been working with Seymour, who then became Blur. And he said, I'm really, really happy to... um, do demos with you um, in, at weekends. And we were like, whoa. And he didn't want any money, you know? And he just got us. And he was really the first person to understand. And he, he recorded with us most of what is now the Singles Bar album, which, by the way, is getting a, a vinyl release. Um, but that's still hush-hush. Um, it's never been on vinyl. It's only, only been on CD, so that's exciting. So, yeah, Graham um, was very much um, the reason why we managed to put out, put out our personality into the early 90s indie music business. When it was still indie, there was no, no indie band was in the main chart, you know. And if you wanted to chart, you had to... You had to be on an indie label, otherwise you weren't going to chart. So anyway, thank you to Graham. Now, unfortunately, and we, this went totally beyond, this was our stu- own stupid fault. When Singles Bar was released, which was the first three EPs that we released, our artwork person completely forgot to put credits on. And Graham didn't get credited, nor did any of the producers. And he was suitably upset about this. And then we got back in touch with him in 2017 and he came to see Salad Undressed play and he was so complimentary. It was so wonderful to see him, Jane. We met in a cafe in in, uh, Carnaby Street. He was like, this album, Good Love, Bad Love, I'm going to review it. I think it's amazing and I'd like to come and see all your gigs and let's, let's do some recording together. And he was just a beautiful human being really beautiful human being and we reminded him we we said we're so sorry about leaving the credits off singles by and went oh i'd forgotten about that all these years we were like oh we've upset graham we've upset and he'd forgotten uh, and obviously it's coming out now uh, on vinyl and we will be crediting him and it was very sad when he died uh, and we it was just so sudden and we were we wanted to record with him in his studio in, near glastonbury isn't it but it just didn't work out for one reason or another. Financial, I think, you know, and just traveling. And if it had been me, I would have been there like a shot. But we had other band members who also had opinions. What a wonderful human being, but really. 
so moving to hear how you met him quite by chance by ringing up the studio and what a thing to happen I thought you were going to tell me that maybe you introduced or you heard of him but what a beautiful story what was it like in the studio at the time going back so much fun Jane oh my goodness it was our art we were painting a massive blank canvas with him you know and he was just ready to accept it all and put his input in and, and be, basically, he facilitated what we wanted to do. And of course, early 90s, it was it, none of it was digital, it was analog, massive desks, tape running out. You know, at the end of our very, very first single called Kent, it finishes very abruptly because the tape ran out. And it's a beautiful ending to a song. And it, it was just pure... It was an accident. We we work a lot with accidents, you know. I mean, that's that's how you do life. You plan and then things get in the way and you find out that it's actually, you couldn't have planned it any better than than the curveballs that, that life throws at you. And that's what it was like to record with Graham. And after the Beat Factory, he had a different studio in West Hampstead and we continued to record our B-sides with him. And we just always had so much yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. one of the band, really. Yeah. And what was it like to tour with Blur? It was the highlight of our career, really. That and um, singing with Terry Hall for the Help album. But Blur, so we were we were on the up. You know, 1993, we'd just been signed by Ireland, I think, or were about to. And we knew Andy Ross, who was basically with Dave Balfe, they ran food records. And with the Merry Babes, I'd been trying to get Andy Ross to sign us for years and years and years. And he'd been to all sorts of gigs and he'd say, Morena, look, I like you live, but who's going to listen to your records? And look, Morena, I like you live, but lose that pink boa, feather boa. And, you know, then we became sad and he said, look, guys, I like your life, but why are you smiling so much on stage? You know, he had, he had all the advice, you know. Um, and when Salad did become to a level where we needed to support a big band and we were, we were the talk of the town for a minute, both Alex and Damon came to see us at the Bulling Gate where we played quite a lot in Kentish Town and they agreed that we would be a good support. It made our career basically it was all the universities around England and it was so fun but I we'd always been Blur fans so it wasn't just blowing uh, touring with a band that was going places it was also touring with your favorite act I was always star starstruck by Damon and but I got on really well with Alex he was the easiest to talk to and um, Graham was a real guitar hero Dave Roundtree was very quiet unassuming and very grounded and you know I have still have a birthday card somewhere from the boys in my attic a nice photograph of us in town center somewhere you know where everyone's looking at the camera except for Damon because he's too cool for school without that tour uh, our career would be very different what I was going to um ask you is you had Wardorf and then you were signed to a label was it two labels so Wardorf was our own label we made that because yeah. nobody would buy, nobody was interested in us. So, you know, you have to sort of just, you have to yeah. launch yourself onto the market. And then Island Records signed us and they set up uh, a brand new independent label called Island Red. 
because mm. uh, if we released anything on Island Records, we would not get into the indie charts. And I mentioned right. earlier that indie music then was not mainstream. So if you and there were indie charts. So Island Red was an independent label, which meant that all of our records would chart in the indie chart on Island Red. Yeah. And I think then Ice Cream, our, our label Ice Cream, uh, our record Ice Cream was then eventually on um, the Island label. I think Island Red yeah. might have been dissolved by then. It didn't chart anyway. So, you know, yeah. we were dead by yeah. then. <laughs> yeah. And now working more independently, do, do you feel that has distinctive advantages? Does it feel right for now? Or would you prefer to be managed by completely by a label again? Well, I think there's pros and cons to both. Um, the pros of being independent is that you get to make all your choices, your creative choices. Um, mm. And the cons are that you have no money. Um, the pros of being on a label is you have some other people being able to help with booking gigs, making decisions about where to gig and perhaps, you know, and funding the recording process. So there's pros and cons to both. enjoy being in control of videos um, and doing exactly what we want and we've we've done we've done some really cheap videos really effectively my ex-husband films quite a lot of them um, we're still in you know we're, we're still a very good partnership and then I edit them and uh, we both come up with the concept although our videos in the 90s and again I, I keep working with people I go out with. It was my boyfriend at the time that made all our videos in the 90s and they, they were a talking point. They were quite unusual. It started off with Diminished Clothes, which was a black and white moody piece on a beach with um, falling dinghies full of water. You know, really unusual, really surreal. And MTV immediately picked up on it. Nothing to do with the fact that I was an MTV presenter. Anyway, yeah. Because you've had a very interesting past. And I've done all sorts, Jane. You want to know what else? So after yeah. the band after the band split in '98, I went into TV production, and that's where I learned my editing skills. I worked for Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and a Scandinavian company called Viasat. Um, and then when that and I do voiceovers as well. I'm a voiceover artist. Um, then I quit the editing uh, business for a bit. And when my son was expelled for being for biting, <laughs> mainstream school does not go well with um, his type of autism. And then when I came to Brighton, I worked in McDonald's for a bit. I had to put food on the table. Um, that was hard, hard. Yeah. I did two days a week for five weeks and I was dead because I'm I was in my 50s. This is two years ago. Um, I couldn't cope, but it put food on the table for five weeks. So, and now I'm an, uh, a tutor at the film school. So, but my son is 
by far the most important, obviously. And yeah. it's all about him and yeah. getting into... He's just started school again. He's been out of school for three years. Um, yeah. And he is... Uh, He's obviously my prime purpose in life. I just have a couple of final questions. And one of them is that you came to England when you were 13 years old. Is that right? And that you're Dutch. And really, what advice would you give for others who maybe are coming from another country or another experience or a different background? Well, the, the, the I think maybe the music industry has opened up a bit, but... Is there any particular advice for those who maybe don't fit in or are a little bit unusual and they really want to sort of step out and make their mark within music and get the support they need? What helps you? Well, I think you're right. The music business has opened up, but um, every country is always going to be very inclusive. Uh, However much they say, you know, everyone is welcome. I've always felt like an outsider. So if you are an outsider coming in, make the most of that. Be the outsider. Um, Be the outsider. Find find the friends and the businesses that like your outsiderness and work with it. Don't try and fit in because you are unique and you have a unique voice. There will be failures. There will be people who won't understand, but you just keep on going and eventually you find your crowd you find your tribe um Mm. i still feel like an outsider partly because um in holland i'm not quite dutch enough and in england i'm not quite english enough so Mm. in holland i i've become very british in terms of i'm not that outspoken anymore and in england i'm very outspoken but also probably because i'm neurodivergent somewhere along the line i'm waiting to be to get referred to hopefully get a diagnosis for ADHD and my son is autistic and so is my husband ex-husband so and so is Paul and so my tribe has always been the outsiders so find your tribe and don't do not uh, feel embarrassed about it you know educate the others educate the others in your uniqueness thank you so much for sharing those very powerful words I'm sure it will really reach out and help many people along the way. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. You've been listening into to Sound Vibe, and Morena has been talking from Salad. If you'd like to hear more about bands, musicians, and creative entrepreneurs doing their thing all over the globe, then you might like to subscribe on your pod app. You can also visit my website, janenicolasoundvibe.com, to sign up for the newsletter. Till next time.